Our scripture reading this morning, the first scripture reading, is based on the Psalm 122, which was used for our call to worship. So these words will be already resounding in your hearts. Let us listen for the word of God. I was glad when they said, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing in your gates, Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. That is where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to praise the name of the Lord according to the statute given to Israel. There stand the thrones for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. May there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. For the sake of my family and friends, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your prosperity. And our second scripture reading also plays off this same theme of pilgrims coming out to the holy city, the mountain of Jerusalem, to worship God in that temple. Except in this instance, it's not in this person's lifetime, but foreshadowing that future date at the end time. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many people will come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not rise up against nation, nor will they study war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. May God add a blessing to the reading and the hearing and the understanding of God's holy word. Well, good morning, beloved community. Good morning, disciples and friends of First Church. Good morning, all. I loved greeting you on All Souls, All Saints Sunday with, Good morning, saints. There are so many ways I could greet you. Well, today I won't give you this greeting, but it would be entirely in keeping with our Christian tradition, believe it or not, if I greeted you thusly. Good morning, fools. There is a long Christian tradition of being fools, being called fools and claiming that we are, in fact, fools. A long tradition I thought all of the children would be in Disciple Road, but there are these words we're not allowed to say to each other. We can't call each other stupid, right? I didn't think you'd be here to hear me say stupid from the pulpit. We don't call each other dummies. We don't say that we are, or others are, naive or delusional or dumb. But Christians throughout time, from the very beginning, have been called foolish and all of the above. So there is an ancient writer, Celsus, who quotes some objections against the doctrine of Jesus, he says, made by a few individuals who are considered Christian and not of the more intelligent, 
as he supposes, but of the more ignorant class. He asserts that, quote, the following are the rules laid down by them. Let no one come to us who has been instructed or who is wise or who is prudent. Imagine if our ushers were at the doors every Sunday turning away anybody who they thought was too smart. This is a community for dummies, for the uneducated. So if any be ignorant or unintelligent or uninstructed, any foolish persons, let them come with confidence. Of course, he's mocking the early Christian communities. He says, by which words, acknowledging that such individuals are worthy of their God, they manifestly show that they desire and are able to gain over only the very silly and the stupid, and especially women and children. Imagine for the ancients who studied Plato and Socrates and Aristotle, who believed in virtue and rationality and intelligent discourse, imagine them mocking Christians and all that they stood for and all that they believed in. But there is also a counter-tradition going back all the way to the beginning to the Apostle Paul owning the foolishness of the faith. Just as, you know, marginalized groups who reclaim a slur levied against them, who take it and claim it and own it, and by doing so, they take all the power out of it, Christians have always also stood in this truth. Yes, we are fools. The Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians, the wisdom of this world is folly with God. He says we are fools for the sake of Christ. And to the Romans, he writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Of course, the implication is that it is something that you might be likely to be ashamed of. How embarrassing to be among this group of naive, deluded, silly, unintelligent people. So if I did stand here and shout out a happy good morning, fools, I would be in keeping with this long tradition, and you would be in keeping with being proud to receive the greeting. And we could all respond in kind. So today is the first Sunday in Advent. We light the candle of hope, and I propose to you that hoping, being people who feel hope, and people who act and live in hope, people who do hopeful things, is the most foolish of all of the foolish things that we Christians do. To the outside world, these things that Christians do when they have hope, are ridiculous. Let's go through a few of them. Well, it is foolish, for one thing, to have a baby. It is foolish to get married and promise to love someone for the rest of your life or theirs. It is foolish to forgive someone who has wronged you. It is all utter foolishness. In this world when only 10% of things that are thrown into a recycling bin earmarked for recycling, only 10% of them actually get recycled, it was very foolish of the town of Fairfield to decide that we would change our transfer station and be very deliberate about how we collect plastic and glass and try to make a difference in climate change. This ship is underway. It is on a destruction course. It is foolish of us to engage in this practice, is it not? These things that we do in hope are foolish. 
It is foolish to plant a tree that may never bear fruit in your lifetime or cast enough shade for you to be able to sit under. It is foolish when now there are 8 billion people on this planet, over 100 million of whom have been forcibly displaced for this church to set up an apartment for a refugee family in our community and stock their refrigerator and their pantry with food. It is foolish to think that we could possibly move the needle or make a difference. It is foolish to come here and sit in the sanctuary. Aren't you busy? If this sermon gets boring, won't your mind go to list making? Christmas lists you need to buy, grocery lists, all of the things you need to do. It is foolish to sit here still in the pews and get ready for Christmas first with worship with getting our hearts ready to receive Jesus. Truly, it is foolish. This world so often turns to violence. Mass shootings and hate crimes are reported, it seems, every day. This scripture that tells us that we should beat swords into plowshares. There has been initiative through the Council of Churches of Greater Bridgeport with a gun buyback program, and turning guns into things that can grow food, turning swords into plowshares, spears into pruning hooks. How foolish. If you are living in a little village and you see a stranger coming over the next hill and you don't know if they come as friend or foe, but you have beaten your sword into a plowshare, all you will have to offer them instead of a way to protect yourself, is perhaps to welcome them to your table and offer them the loaf of bread you've been able to grow. How foolish of a choice is that? So Christians worship the Prince of Peace, and we do it very, very foolishly. But in as much as all of this is foolish, it is deeply faithful Each of these things is entirely faithful, entirely hopeful. There is no way of being like an ancient philosopher, stoic and wise and rational, when God has called you to live in the way of Christ, when God has turned your heart in this direction. Because God, the one who makes us in God's own image, is hopeful and is incredibly foolish in the ways God loves us. Imagine that divine heart broken again and again and again for love of us. And yet God continues to create, to love, to care for this broken and beloved world. God leads us in the way of foolish and faithful hope. So let's return to the text to better understand this foolish and faithful hope. I love that when we begin... We begin with selfishness. In the beginning of the psalm, I was glad. We start so often our sentences with I and how we feel. Isn't this just part of the human condition? We start from a place of I. And you will notice if you join in the Advent devotional, in one of the first pages, Maya Angelou, when she wrote her autobiography, said that she did it because when she says I, she means we. We so quickly turn from the individual in a life of faith to the collective. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And we quickly look around when we get there, and we see everyone who's gathered with us. 
So this is where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord. This is where the people are all flocking together. We remember that Israel is named for that patriarch, the father, who had 12 tribes descended from him. And they all keep their original distinctive names and titles and ways of living and ways of being, but they acknowledge that they share one common father, one common spiritual father. And in the other scripture for today, so similar it's hard to tell them apart, instead of many tribes coming up to it in those days, in future times, it's many nations. So we've moved from I to we to many tribes, to all of the nations. Do you see how quickly in a life of faith it expands, your heart grows and makes room for those around you? So the people will say, all people, let us go to the mountain of the Lord. We quickly turn to this outward focus. So we need to pause for a moment and think, what is it about Jerusalem? This city on a hill that is supposed to be a light to the nations, We are lighting candles, waiting for the Prince of Peace, for Jesus Christ, the light of the world. What is it that makes this a universal message? And if we are to be so expansive with our thinking that it's we in this household of faith, but also all the tribes and all the nations, what is it that these scriptures are proclaiming that Jerusalem, the house of David, that this house of the Lord, that God's law has to share. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and then nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. How is it that in God's hopeful, faithful way of being, we ultimately get to peace? So I think one of the ways Christianity went wrong was in taking all of these scriptures and thinking that what we were imposing in this model, that we had divine truth and that we had to share it with all of the nations, that eventually all the nations would come to worship this one God, was that we all had to be culturally alike. And what happened with colonialism and empires spreading out is that they took their own culture and tried to superimpose it on the cultures of everyone else instead of taking this model of what God was trying to teach people. Martin Copenhaver, who preached last week, writes in his book, To Begin at the Beginning, that the origin story of this faithful group of people was not creation, but was freedom from slavery, that they wrote the Bible from that vantage point of people who had been liberated and then wrote the older creation accounts after the fact. But their core identity was as a people who knew that God loved them and wanted them to be free. So this law that comes from God that they have to share is one where God also feels that way about all people. Instead of having different local deities who would vie for power over one another and compel people to want to fight one another, this law, this light that can shine from Jerusalem if we let it, is to acknowledge that God is the God of the entire world. But what that means is not that we all need to be alike and worship in the same way, but that all tribes and all nations can still be their own tribe and nation, but can flock together to this good news, which the Apostle Paul would say, yes, maybe foolish, but that we would not be ashamed of it, that this is the core truth. God, maker of heaven and earth, creator of all that is, 
loves, cares for each and every one of you, and wants you to beat your swords into plowshares, your spears into pruning hooks, to not study war anymore, because if you turn your heart so far outward, so expansively, that you can recognize every single person as equally beloved of that one divine being. It doesn't matter who they are or how they worship or where they live. It matters that we recognize each other as children of that one God, as family with one another, no matter who the others are. How foolish and how counter to everything that we are steeped in in our tradition every day. But this is why we come. This is why we go to the mountain of the Lord. This is why it says, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. So can we live foolishly? Can we imagine that God's hopeful future is possible? Can we live in that hope? Yes, it is completely foolish, but it is the way that Jesus shows us. And as people say, if this is wrong, I don't want to be right. If this is foolish, I don't want to be wise. So saints, beloved, holy fools, let us live in a foolish way. Let us follow our foolish and faithful and hopeful and loving God in all that we say and do. May it be so.